The scripture that we're going to be looking at this morning comes from this same section that we've read multiple times uh, recently. And so I just want to read verse 18 of Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18. I'll read one verse and I'll sort of recap the other verses that we've looked at. But verse 18, Jesus speaking says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask that He would add His blessing to His Word. Father, the church is something much bigger than we understand. And as we look and begin to study the doctrine of the church, we ask that you would help us to understand, illuminate our hearts and our minds, give us uh, the ability to, to see how it might apply to us. We ask that your spirit would, would convict and exhort and encourage us from your word and over the next several weeks. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have a seat. When it comes to the church, there's a lot of debate and a lot of controversy and that there's even discrimination amongst those who call themselves Christians and a lot of the debate centers around what happens within the church. What happens when we, when we gather together and some of it even when we, when we scatter. Should we have a pastor and some deacons? Or should we have elders and deacons? Should we have a contemporary worship service? Or should we have a traditional worship service? Should we have a satellite campus and watch a man on a screen? Or should we plant a church? Should we have children's church or not? Should we have a youth ministry or not? Should we have theatrical performances in the church or not? Should we have formal church membership or should we just have organic assimilation? Should we have a praise team or should we have a song leader? Should we sing new songs only? Should we sing hymns only? Should we stick to exclusive psalmody and only sing inspired hymns? Now the list could go on and on and on of all of the different topics and, and, and uh, places where many who profess to be Christians just disagree. We just, we just disagree. And although we should probably not expect uh, all of these disagreements to just go away until we are in glory, they're going to be here. I think there is one question that if we answer this question, it will help us uh, come to a much quicker, um, an easy, more easily settled answer uh, to a lot of these things. And that question is, whose church is it? You see, whoever the church belongs to will be the one that we turn to to settle those types of disputes. If this church belongs to us, then we call the shots. And if the church across town belongs to them and those people, well, they call the shots. And we have no right to, to say that what they're doing is right or wrong and they have no right to say what we're doing is right or wrong. It's just, it's all a matter of opinion. But if our church does not belong to us and if their church does not belong to them, 
then none of us have the right to prescribe what happens in the church and how the church is ordered and how the church is structured and governed. So whose church is it? Is it ours? Is it theirs? Well, I think the answer is fairly obvious in this verse, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, where Jesus says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Comes from the mouth of Jesus. So, in this section, Jesus has just confirmed this great confession on which the church is built, the confession of His identity, where Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He, he verifies that by saying, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In other words, you are correct. You've made the right confession. I am the Christ. I am the promised anointed Messiah. I am the Son of the living God. And you didn't come to that conclusion on your own, but my Father who is in heaven has revealed that to you. And here he, he sort of continues to talk with Peter and he uses Peter, who's spoken up on behalf of the disciples, he uses Peter as a, an example and, a, and as a, a, a talking point, if you will, because Peter's name sounds like the same word for rock, Petros. So he uses that. He says, you are Peter, you are rock, if you will, and, and speaking of rocks, upon this rock... I will build my church. The rock is the confession that Peter has just made that Christ or that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now Peter will also play a major role in the, the initial launching of the New Testament church on the day of Pentecost, and I believe some of that is sort of foreshadowed here. But what Jesus is saying is, is, is your name sounds like rock, and what you've just said is also a rock. On this rock, on this confession that I am the promised Messiah and I am the Son of the living God, on top of that confession and the proclamation of that confession and all who agree uh, with that confession, the belief in this confession, on top of that, I'm going to build my church, Jesus says. And before we look at the answer to the question, whose church is it? I want to sort of use today this opportunity to cover some introductory ground when it comes to the church and the statement Jesus made here. We've said several times, this is the first mention of the word church in the New Testament. And it's spoken by Jesus. And so this is a big deal. Um, the first thing, or the first question that I'd like to answer before we get to whose church is it, is, is what is the church? What is the church? The first thing I think is important for us to understand is that the church is not the kingdom. The church is not the kingdom. Jesus has used the term kingdom 31 times in His gospel up until this point. Here He uses the word church. If Jesus would have meant to say church or a kingdom, He would have said kingdom. But he didn't say kingdom, he said church. He doesn't mean kingdom. He doesn't say on this rock, I will build my church, I mean kingdom. He says church. Now why is this important? Well, let's go back several weeks to the definition that Jordan gave us about uh, uh, the definition of the kingdom. 
Remember that the kingdom has a, a present state. Jesus came, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He said, if I am casting out these demons, if the demons are cast out by the power of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's here. There's a present state of the kingdom, which is the sovereign, redemptive rule and reign of God through Christ, by the power of His Holy Spirit, in the hearts of His people, for His own glory and purposes. That's right now the kingdom is here. But there's also a future way that we look at the kingdom, because we know that the kingdom is a phrase that we've used is already, but not yet. It's here, but there's more to come. There's a consummation that we are awaiting. And the future definition was this, and pay attention. The future kingdom that we're looking forward to is the absolute reign of God over all things which He has made righteously perfect by His justice and holiness and in which all things are perfectly displaying the glory of God in and through Jesus Christ for all eternity. Now notice some of the language there. The absolute reign of God over all things in which all things are perfectly displaying the glory of God. This reign of God in Christ will eventually envelop everything absolutely to the point where it is displaying the glory of God. Everything. Now, the question we might ask is, well, does Christ not reign over all things now? Absolutely He does. He does reign over all things, but Hebrews 2 tells us that even though all things are under His feet, at present we do not yet see all things under His feet. And the point here is that there will come a day, specifically when there is a new heaven and a new earth, where we can see it. He absolutely reigns over everything. Now right now He reigns and He, he allows uh, sin and wickedness to, to run rampant oftentimes while he's still in control. And it looks like he has no control. And a lot of people think, well, he's lost control. He needs to rein it back in. But that's not what's happening. He's in complete control. It just doesn't look that way. We're longing for the day when the kingdom is visible and we can see him ruling absolutely. The kingdom will take over everything on this earth visibly. But the church does not do that. The church does not assimilate everything. There are certain things about the kingdom that are just not true about the church. For example, in Luke chapter 17 and verse 20, we read, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he, that's Jesus, answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So Jesus says very plainly, the kingdom cannot be observed. You cannot look at it and say, that's the kingdom right there. And he also says the kingdom is in the midst of you or, or within you. It's inside. It's inward. But that's not true about the church. The church is something that you can point at and say, well, there's, there's the church right there. There's a church over there. You can point at it. Speci uh, another example in the parable of the wheat and the weeds. There is wicked sons of the evil ones sown in amongst the sons of the kingdom. And they're allowed to grow up together. And they, they exist together until the last day. In that parable, Jesus says, it's 
the kingdom, not the church. In the church, we are not to just allow wickedness to run, run amok in the church and say, well, it's just, it's just how it's supposed to be. We're commanded in Scripture to rid the church of wickedness. So the conclusion, the church is not the kingdom. The church is a manifestation of the kingdom or a manifestation of the rule of Christ. Eventually, everything will be absorbed under the dominion of the kingdom, but everything is not going to come under the dominion of the church. The church is something special. It is something more specific than the kingdom. So if anybody ever goes to one of the parables that we've studied in Matthew chapter 13 and they begin to apply those principles to the church, they've missed out a valuable They've missed out on a valuable point that that's about the kingdom, not the church. They're, they're different. They, they share some things that are similar and they are alike in many different ways and they do overlap in many different ways, but they're not the same thing. So what is a church? Well, the word here, church, is the word ecclesia and it means literally a called out assembly. So we ask the question then, called out from what? Well, we're called out from the common. We're called out from the norm. We're called out from the world. And then we are assembled. The church gathers. The church congregates. And what are we? Who is called? Who is assembled? It's people. The church is people. Human beings called out from the world called out from the mass of humanity to get together and assemble. And we assemble around the theme of the glory of God. We assemble around the theme of the gospel of Jesus Christ and we're unified and united by the power of the Holy Spirit. Whereas the kingdom may exist within a person, the rule and reign of God in Christ may exist within a person, the church can't exist within you because you exist in it. You're a person. So the kingdom can be inside and then you are inside the church. The church is people. The next question we want to ask is, where is the church? We know what it is. It's a called out assembly, a called out gathering of people. Where are or where is this church? Well, in the Bible there are uh, three main uh, categories that we could group churches and answer the question, where is the church? The first one is the church is, is local or the church is uh, found in, in Scripture in house churches, in homes. In Romans chapter 16 verse 5, Paul says, Greet also the church in their house. So there was a church in a house. 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 19, Paul writes, Aquila and Prisca together with the church in their house send you hearty greetings in the Lord. So there's a church in a house. Colossians 4 verse 15, Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. In its beginnings, and even also today around the world, churches, the church, can exist inside of a house. Now, um, that idea, that biblical idea of the house church is very close to what we would consider the local church. The members would probably exist or would probably live in a, in, in, a, in a small area. Most of them would have probably been related by blood or marriage. They lived in, in, a, in a region together and they gathered together and that was their local church and they met within a home. 
So we have house churches or local churches. We also have sort of a, a mix between this house church and local church idea, which, uh, which we could put under the heading of, of a regional church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2, we read this. Paul says, "...to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours." Notice he says... The church in Corinth. Corinth was a city. And so he says, in this city, he addresses this singular church of this large metropolitan area. Now perhaps there in Corinth, more than likely there would have been originally one gathering of people. And they may have met in a house. Or they have, may have met in a synagogue there in Corinth. Or may, they may have just gotten together in a, in a community building or something. They, they gathered together. And as the church grew and spread, it would spread out. And there would be more individual, smaller, local churches within this region. But in, in any case, Paul calls the believers in the region of Corinth the church at Corinth. Or that is in Corinth. And then the third... Uh, heading that we might put a church under is the heading of the universal church. The Bible speaks of the universal church. We probably, many of us have heard the term Catholic. And Catholic means universal. Now, when we hear Catholic, we often think of Roman Catholic, which if Catholic means universal and Roman means from Rome, then that is a self-contradictory statement. It's an oxymoron. There's, there's no such thing as a Roman Catholic. But the, the Roman Catholic Church would teach if you're not a part of the Roman Catholic Church, that one perfect church, you're, you're outside of the faith. We know that's not true. But the Bible speaks of the, of the, of the Catholic Church, of the universal church. And here in our passage, verse 18, Jesus says, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. That's singular. Jesus is going to build one church. Now, do we take that to mean He's going to build one little body of people who get together in a brick building in Taylorsville? No. He's talking about the universal, the whole entire church as a whole. Again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28, Paul says, God has appointed in the church... First apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. There Paul says in the church. Does he, does he say, well, there, there are only gifts of teachings in the church there in Corinth? No, he's talking about the universal church. All Christians, this whole body of believers, within this entire universal body, God has appointed several different uh, these, these gifts to work and administer in the church. So the reference is, is to the redeemed, the called out, the elect from all places, from every corner of the earth, from the beginning of time to the end of time, the church. So when the Bible speaks of the church or a church, we see that word church. We see an epistle or a letter written to a church. We have to look at the context to see what exactly it's talking about and determine what kind of church it is. But usually, this is just a, uh, a rule of thumb, most often when the Bible uses the word church, it's addressing what we would call a local church. The letters were written to local churches. Now, we don't have a regional church because there are enough Christians around here that we can gather together in smaller places. 
And quite frankly, there are enough disagreements among the Christians in this small area that we have to get together in smaller places or we'd, we'd pull each other's hair out because we can't come to agreements on certain things, which is not good, but that's just the way it is. So when the Bible speaks of the church, it is a called out assembly of God's people called out from the world to get together around the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ that can manifest itself or has manifested itself in local bodies, in homes or in small buildings or big buildings. Regionally, all of the Christians in this area would be called the church. Oftentimes when we talk about um, overseas, we might say the Chinese church is growing by leaps and bounds. We don't mean that there's just a one church building where, where Chinese Christians gather together. We're talking about over the, the entire country of China, there are millions of Christians who gather in little spots all over the place, and we call it the Chinese church. It's regional, and then it can also be a reference to the universal church. All believers from all times, from all places, from the beginning of time to the end of time, this is the church. It is everywhere. Third question, and this is going to begin to lead us more into uh, answering the question, whose church is it? And the, the question is, what is the church like? Many times in the parables, Jesus would say the kingdom of heaven is like, or the kingdom of God uh, can be likened unto. And He paints these pictures because the kingdom is really hard to just put your finger on and say this is what it is. And the church is the same way. Because of the great mystery behind this church... God, through the inspiration of the uh, writers of Scripture, has given us several different pictures, different uh, analogies or metaphors to help us understand what the church is and how the church operates and its many different roles and duties and the many different characteristics of the church. So we're going to look at these and we're going to look at a lot of Scripture during this section so that we can understand, hopefully begin to understand more about what the church looks like. The first one is that of a body. Scripture calls the church a body. In Ephesians chapter 1 verses 22 and 23, Paul says, and he put all things under his feet, that is Jesus' feet, and gave him, Jesus, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And again in Colossians 1.18, which is the parallel letter with Ephesians, Paul says, He, speaking of Christ, is the head of the body, the church. The body, the church. The church is the body of Christ. The fullness of Him. The complement of Him. The church gathers together as the complement to give glory and, and um, likeness or, or, or display Christ on the earth, His body. We are His body. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul goes into more detail describing this body analogy. And this is a long passage. Listen. He says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot should say, now he's speaking of a physical body, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. 
That would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? Or where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as He chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Here's the point. There are many members, many parts, one body. It's not the, the, the human body and thus the church body is not a collaboration of parts. You stick, stick parts on it and say, there, we finally have a body. No, it is a body that is made up of multiple parts. If you cut off a hand, it's not a complete body. If you cut off a head, it's a dead body. So you have to have all of the parts to make up a full, complete body. And the church is the body of Christ. The next one is... Uh, the picture of a sheepfold or a flock of sheep. Jesus says in John chapter 10, verses 14 through 16, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. One flock... One shepherd. In Psalm 23, the psalmist writes, The Lord is my shepherd. We're sheep. And I've said this many times. This picture of sheep is not a flattering picture. It's not saying you're, 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 you're fluffy and you're, you're, you're cute and you're cuddly. And No, sheep is a picture of, of dumb animals that require leading and guidance and feeding and they have to be made to lay down and rest because they're so fidgety and anxious and scared. But we're like a sheepfold. The church is also compared to a household. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So he says the church is like a household, a, a living unit, a family under one roof. And a household consists of many different members coming together and operating as a household. And those of you who are part of a household can see how this works. Another picture that the Bible paints of the church is that of a bride. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 23 and 24 Paul says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. 
And then in verse 32 of the same chapter, after describing marriage and teaching on marriage, Paul says, the mystery is profound. But I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. This whole picture of marriage, a bride and a bridegroom, it refers to the church. It's a picture of the church. The church is a bride adorned for her husband. The church is a bride in submission to her bridegroom. The church is a bride being cleansed and purified and prepared for her groom. That's a picture of the church. Another picture that the Bible paints of the church is a group of servants under a master. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul continuing this, uh, this family table, he says in Verse 5, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will, will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with Him. So we often run to the end of Ephesians to talk about marriage and the picture of the, the, the marriage and the church, but we very rarely run to Ephesians to use this picture of bondservants and slaves as a picture of the church. But he says, masters and slaves, in our day this would probably be better compared to workers and bosses, don't mistreat one another because you both, if you're both believers, you both have the same master. You're both serving the same master. Colossians 3 and verse 24, again, the parallel letter to Ephesians, he says, you are serving the Lord Christ. Colossians 4.1, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So the church is a picture of this group of humble, obedient fearfully submitting out of a sincere heart, slaves bought and owned by a master. Another picture that the, church, that the Bible uses to describe the church is that of a building. In 1 Peter chapter 2, the beginning of verse 5, it says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. You put stones together, you use mortar, you build a house. It's built up. Ephesians 2.21, again speaking of the church, Paul says, in whom, this is Christ, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So the church is like a structure. A structure has form. It's joined and, and put and connected in many different places and it comes together to form a structure or a building. And then the last one that we'll look at is referenced there at the end of verse 21 of Ephesians 2, the church is compared to the temple. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? And that word you is plural. He's talking to, chapter 1, verse 2, the church of God that is in Corinth. You church, don't you know that you as a church are the temple of God? Not a temple. In the Old Testament, at, any, at one given time, there was only ever one temple or one tabernacle, one place where the dwelling or God's presence would come down and dwell with His people. Not a temple. You are the temple. You the church. 
So when we, and there are more, when we put this, this idea in our minds and we begin to understand this, we, when we, we just say the church, the called out gathering, we, we, we need to realize it's much more than just a gathering of people. A military regiment is a called out assembly. Uh, a group of kids at a school pep rally, please report to the gymnasium. That is a called out assembly. Political candidate supporters at a political rally, that is a called out assembly. But that's not a church. And the church stands out as a most glorious called out assembly. And as you can infer from the text we've just read, that the glorious nature of the church is not just because it's the church, it's in relation to, to whom the church uh, belongs. It's in relation to its founder. So now we come to this question, whose church is it? Locally, regionally, universally, Whose church is it? Well, we are the body, and Christ is our head. We come to complement Him, to give Him glory. It's not the other way around. We bring glory to Him. We are the sheep, and Christ is the good shepherd. We are a household, and Hebrews chapter 3 says that Christ, Jesus, has been placed he is faithful over God's house as a son. Jesus is, the, is now the head of household. And we are the church. We are the bride and Jesus is the bridegroom. We are the servants and Jesus Christ is our master. We are the building or the structure and Christ says in this passage, I will build my church. We are the temple. The temple of who? The temple of the living God. We're God's temple. The answer is clear. Whose church is it? It's Christ's church. The church belongs to Jesus. He is its head. He is its shepherd. He is the bridegroom. He's the master. He's the builder. He is our God. Jesus is the owner of the church. A passage that we've looked at many times in reference to the kingdom and how it works is Psalm chapter 2 and specifically verse 8. We're going back into eternity. Remember, he says, I will tell of the decree, the eternal decree of God. Here the Father speaking to the Son in Psalm 2 verse 8 says, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You see the church... Jew and Gentile together, gathered together from the nations. It's not an afterthought. God hasn't said, well, I guess the deal with Israel didn't work. I'll just go to the church now. No, from, the, from before the foundation of the world, He was asked for the nations. And, he, and the Father says, I will make the nations your possession. And then He comes to Abraham and He says, from you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And then Jesus comes and He says, now go ye therefore into all nations. It's one theme from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. And then our Lord comes into human history to live and to die, and He states His purpose in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. He says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. He gave His life as a ransom, the purchase price, to buy us back out of slavery to sin, out, of, out from under the wrath of God. So get the picture. The Father says to the Son, I will make the nations your heritage. Then the Son comes into human history and He lays down His body on the table and He says, I will take the nations. I will have the nations. And He gives His life as a ransom for many. John chapter 10, verse 11 
Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Not the goats, not the wolves, the sheep. John chapter 10 verse 15, Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Paul, in speaking of this redemption, this ransom price that has been paid at the cross, says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 19 and 20, You are not your own, you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Again, in the next chapter, you were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. In Ephesians 5, we've already read it. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. The church, locally, regionally, universal, belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ because He bought her. He owns her. He came into human history, paid His blood to purchase the church, He owns the church. So, since the church, in, in its several expressions, locally, regionally, globally, however you want to say it, since the church belongs to Christ, then in the weeks to come we're going to see that if, since that's true, then, then Christ's purpose is the church's purpose. They're not two different purposes. They're one and the same. Since He owns the church, then His doctrine is our doctrine. What He believed is what we believe. Since the church belongs to Christ, then our perseverance is based on His power to preserve. The membership of the church, the criteria of membership is set by Christ, not by us. The leadership of the church is appointed by Christ, not by us. And the authority given to the church to operate is not given by us and it's not given by the state. It's given by Christ who said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And this is my church. And then He gives us authority. And none of these areas, none of them, do we have the right to interject our opinion or our traditions ever because it's not our church. Secondly, and in closing, consider, that, consider those analogies that the Bible uses to describe the church and consider your role in them. The church is a body. And Paul said... In 1 Corinthians, that the body is in need of every single part. Without a part, it is an incomplete body. If the eye is out, then the foot will stumble. If the lungs fill up with liquid and, and, and gasp for breath, then the brain will not receive the oxygen that it needs. Every single member is important in a body. When one aches, when one fails, when one succumbs to sickness, the whole body suffers. So... Every single member of this church is absolutely crucial to the functioning of the church. This church locally, the church regionally and universally. Now you might say, well, I don't, I don't really do anything. Perhaps that's why our church struggles in certain areas and suffers and stumbles. It's because we've got people who are gifted in certain areas who just aren't doing anything. But every member is absolutely crucial. The church is like a sheepfold, and every sheep is precious to the shepherd. Remember, David would risk life and limb to... He had a flock of sheep, but he would risk life and limb to rescue a lamb, a single lamb from the mouth of a bear or a lion. And he lived to tell about it. The good shepherd sees all of his lambs like that, every single one. And in those situations, a good shepherd and the good shepherd says, Today... A bear might die, 
A lion might die or a shepherd might die, but a lamb will not die. Because I will preserve, I will protect and rescue every single sheep. The church is like a household. And every member pitches in and does their part. If you've got a family or children, you know that when one member disobeys, refuses to help out, or is stubborn, the whole household's in disarray and under stress and tension because God has designed a household to work a certain way and the church is no different. The church is a bride. And a groom without a bride is just a a man standing in shame in front of a bunch of his friends and family. And a groom... With a dirty, disgraceful, adulterous bride is the mockery of a town. But a groom with a bride who's been washed and sanctified and purified and cleansed is a glowing and proud husband. He has something the Bible says is more precious than rubies. And Christ has bought the church with His blood and He will have her cleansed and purified on the day when we meet Him. The church is like servants. If we're servants, that means we are charged with duties and service to our king. And we have no right as slaves to object to our commands, to complain about our commands, or to carry out our commands with a bad attitude because we serve a king who gave his life for his servants. The church is like a building and every single building has a million different parts that come together to make it a building, to make it work, a structure. A mansion in Beverly Hills with a bad plumbing system is going to smell like a septic tank. No matter how beautiful it is on the outside, it's going to stink. And so you might come and be a part of the church and say, well, I'm, I'm a window and I'm the part everybody sees when they first come in the door. Or you might think, well, I'm just a, I'm just a little coupling on the septic system. But if that coupling is the wrong size and things get messed up, the whole thing stinks. It's not presentable. Every member is important. And the church is God's temple. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle and then the temple was the place where the presence of God would come down and dwell in and amongst His people. And then Christ comes as the true temple, the the God in human flesh who tabernacled amongst His people. And then He ascends to the right hand of the Father and He says, now the church is my body. The church is the temple of the living God. The church is the place where God's presence is going to come down on the earth and dwell in the midst of His people. We are that place. When we get together, we're the place where God's presence comes down. If the lost of the world are going to commune with God, it's going to be in and through either the gathered or scattered assembly of God's people. They're going to either come here and hear the gospel, or we're going to go there and hear the gospel. If they're going to hear from God, it's going to be through the written word, taught, verified, exhorted in and through God's people. If the lost are going to hear the gospel preached so that they may be saved, it'll be through us being sent out. It's through the church. The church has a huge task. Too, too massive for us to complete. When Paul says, who's sufficient for these things? The answer is nobody. None of us, not every church put together. We cannot complete the task. And that's why Jesus says, I will be with you always until the end of the world. I'm going to be there in the midst of the church. We are His church. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. He will finish the work that He's begun in us. The church is big. It, it's, it's, it's much deeper and uh, more majestic than we've ever imagined. 
But when we begin to understand these things about the church, we'll begin to understand that what I do on Sunday is not just uh, an addition to what I did Monday through Friday or just a kickstart to what I'm going to do on the next Monday or Friday. This is a place where we center our lives. It's the church. The world would say, well, you need to center your life around a place that has good schools or has safe neighborhoods or, or, or good, good court systems or good police presence. And we said, no, we want to center our lives around the church of Jesus Christ. That is the center of the life for the New Testament believer. So let's remember these things as we move ahead in the weeks to come. Let's go to the Lord in prayer that He would help us to understand these things and also bless the food that we're about to eat.